Several years ago, my wife and I and our kids at, were ministering at a different church, and after it, a church service on a Sunday, this very kind and very elderly couple invited us to a restaurant uh, with them. And it was well after the noon hour, and you know how it gets on Sunday afternoons after a church service, what your stomach starts feeling like, right? You, you get that really hangry kind of feeling. And uh, we're sitting at this restaurant, and we go in, and we, we give the waiter our orders, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. After about five minutes, I'm wondering, man, when is the food going to come? <laughs> But it was more than five minutes. Like we waited, like 15 minutes goes by, 20, 45 minutes. I kid you not, it was well over an hour and the food still hadn't come. And our, our, our young kids were there and you know when you're in a situation like that, you start asking all sorts of questions to yourself and then to the people around you. Like, is it just me or does this feel like it's taking a long time? Does Papa John's deliver to this place? Do you have any MREs we could survive on while we wait for the food? But there's, after you run out of all the questions, there's just one question. By the way, I never got this question answered. I don't care to. There's just one question. Who's in charge? That's the question that I want to know. Who's in charge of this place? We need help. By the way, when I was preparing for this sermon, I did a Google search and found out that that restaurant, it's, it shows up on Google search, but it says permanently closed. Not surprised. Have you ever looked at, re at your life and at the world around you and asked, who's in charge? Who is in charge of this? If you didn't have the Bible to give you answers, just suppose for a minute you didn't have the Bible. You just had your own heart, your own life, your own experiences and the history that you know. What kind of person or what kind of thing would you possibly imagine would be in charge of this. With all the bizarre mixture of fairness and unfairness, of good and evil, of beauty and ugliness, all these things jumbled up together, if you had to answer the question, who is in charge, what, would you, what kind of answer would you come up with? No wonder people in ancient times and modern times have been polytheists. That is, they worship many gods. Why? Because people tend to lean toward whatever they think gives an explanation for our experiences. And more than that, people tend to lean into what they think can help them out, what they think has the power to be in charge. Now, why does this matter for us? It's not because we as Americans are about to build a temple to Zeus, Athena, or Paulus or anything, but because we also, you and I, and people in our culture, we tend to lean into whatever we think has the power, whatever we think is in charge, whoever we think can help us. We tend to lean toward that, to trust in that, to depend on that. And it's no surprise then that in this letter that you've opened up to in your Bible, this very letter that Paul writes to the, the Christians living in, in Colossae, he addresses the, this question of who's in charge. Why? Because, remember earlier I said the whole raging issue in the church right now is what can possibly make me fully mature? What can solve my problem? What can bring me to be the authentic human that I think I'm intended to be? And that's the question. So no wonder Paul is describing, okay, here is someone that is actually in charge. Here is the person with the power, with the authority, with the right, with the might to do all this. 
And so it's so important that we understand, and it's so important what we believe about who is in charge, who is master. And so in answer to this question, the question is, okay, who is in charge? In answer to the question, Paul gives a poem. Because, and I say the poem, a poem, you're like, I didn't hear any rhyming when you read that. Oh, okay, so it's not that kind of poem, all right? It is a poem because the more you study it, the more you realize in the, in the original language that there's this compelling cadence, but even in our translations, we can see this intentional repetition and a building of thought to make a very strong point that we can understand and be convinced through this verses, verse 15 all the way to verse 20. It is a poem, and the poem is meant to answer the question, so who's in charge? Who can we lean into? Who can we depend upon? Who can we trust to answer our deepest questions and to meet our deepest needs? And that's why Paul says this, he, referring to Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so in answer to the question, who's in charge, Paul doesn't say, well, it's just the blind fate of evolutionary forces. Well, it's, he doesn't say, it's just the power structures of politics right now. He doesn't say it's the dazzling personality of the personalities of the celebrities that, that dominate the screen. No, he says the, the person in charge is Jesus Christ. Now, I, I say that and you're not surprised by that because of the, this is the Bible after all, but we, we can find that hard to believe in our time because we're so, and we, we think it's because we're so far removed from the life of Jesus. But if we were to go back in history, around the time that Paul actually wrote this, in the 50s or 60s AD, we're only talking about 20 or 30 years since Jesus lived. And how did Jesus live and how did he die? He lived as a peasant and he died as a criminal. And now Paul is saying, he's the one in charge. Okay, we find it hard to believe here in the 21st century. It was no less easy to believe from an earthly perspective way back in the first century. Why? Because Jesus of Nazareth was a human being who walked on the earth and people actually knew him. But there was something important about this individual that made him unlike any other. And that is that Jesus Christ made these claims about himself all of which were validated by the fact that he rose from the dead. That's why Paul, near the middle of this poem, says, and he is the firstborn from the dead. Right? He is the first to rise, to demonstrate that this life is not there, all there is to it, that there is a life beyond the grave, and Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating once and for all his power over sin and death. And so Paul is exalting this Christ as the one who is truly in charge. And this fits into the theme of this book because whoever is in charge will be the one that we look to for maturity. You will find wholeness and maturity in no one else except for this one that Paul is writing about here in this poem. And I want to just show you before we get into actually the, the outline of the sermon. So that I have three points and I'll tell, tell you what those are in just a moment. But, but because I told you that this passage is a poem, I want you to, to see some components of it, all right? So that we can understand why this is. And the reason why it's important for us to understand that is because as we understand that, I think the impact of this will be greater for us. So the impact of this section of scripture will be increased for us as we understand what is going on here. 
it divides into two parts. So the first section is the one that we're going to be focusing on this morning, 15, 16, and 17. And you see some repetition. Notice in verse 15, you see the word firstborn. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You see the word firstborn. And then you see firstborn somewhere else. Where do you see it? Verse 18. It says, he is the firstborn from the dead. So firstborn of all creation, verse, seven, verse 15. Firstborn from the dead in verse 18. There's some repetition there. Furthermore, there's some repetition of these prepositions in, through, and to. It says, for by him, the word literally is, in him all things were created. Later on in verse 16, through him and for him. Right? So in Christ, were all things created. Through him and for him, he's the source of all things. He's the means of all things. And he's the end of all things. We see the same prepositions at work in the second half of the poem. In verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, through whom to reconcile uh, to, uh, to himself all things. So there's in him, through him, and to him again. There's this repetition. The point that Paul is making is, is in both halves of this poem that are all about Jesus Christ, he's saying he is the source, he is the means, he is the end. This is exalting Jesus Christ. And then another point about this is that both halves of the poem end in a similar way. Alright, so you look at verse 17. It ends with this. And in him all things hold together. So Jesus Christ is actually the force behind everything in this universe being consisting, holding together. But then at the end of this poem, it says not only is he able to hold together what is, but he can bring together what has been separated. You see what's going on here? In, in verse 17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You, you see there's a mirroring going on here. With, with, with reference to the physical universe, Jesus Christ holds it all together. With reference to the fact that people have been alienated from God, Jesus has the power to bring them back together and make peace. The effect of this poem is to highlight Jesus Christ as the Lord of creation and of new creation. And, and those would be the best way to summarize the two halves of this poem. Jesus is the Lord of creation, verse 15, 16, and 17. And he's the Lord of new creation, 18, 19, and 20. Another way to put it is this. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He's Lord and Savior. He is master over what is. And he's also the master of what should be. He is Lord and Savior. He is the head of the body, the church. That is a new humanity that is not defined by skin color or economic status or educational level or political power, but because they have been brought from, life, from death to life. And so the point here is, over, over all this poem, is that as the image of God, Christ is over all because he created it all, so he deserves it all. And here's how we'll divide this. In verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul is telling us who Jesus is, how he ranks, and what he has done. All right? Jesus Christ is over all. He's the Lord of creation. Here are the reasons. Because of who he is how he ranks, and what he's done. 
All right, so first of all, because of who he is. Who is Jesus, according to this poem, right from the outset? Paul says this, he is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the one who makes God visible to us. Jesus is the one who makes God comprehensible to us, comprehensible to us. He is the image of the invisible God. A few months ago, I, I shared this thing that I came across uh, where this lady was writing a book about children's conception of God and interviewed some kids. And these, they had some, some pretty interesting answers. They said, what does God look like? Minnie, age six, said, God has long white hair and a white beard and a white face. But he wears blue clothes and blue shoes. Manny, age six, my mom talks to God when we need more money. Lion, age seven, God is like a cloud, like a genie. Gabby, age nine, God has giant ears so we can hear everything we are saying. You think about all these different conceptions. Really, what is God like? If we want to know what God really is like, we cannot consult our imagination. Otherwise, the God that we believe in will be a God of our own invention. And we cannot consult the opinions of anybody else. If we want to know what God is like, we have to see who Jesus is because Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the one through whom we know God. This is what John is saying. And I'm going to read some passages to you from, from Scripture that support this same point. What John says in his, in his gospel, he says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus. He has made him known. Jesus is the one who explains God to us. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 goes like this. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by whom? By his son, Jesus Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here is the point. Is that apart from Jesus, we, we cannot understand who God is. Is God a God of mercy or is he a God of justice? Is God a God who is infinitely far from us or is intimately closely connected to us? Is God a God of, of stern cruelty or is he a God of goodness? These are the sort of things that we cannot figure out apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when he came to the earth, demonstrates that God, yes, he is a God that's transcendent and separate from this universe, but he is also a God who is willing to dwell with his people. And by dying on the cross, Jesus shows, yes, God is a God of justice because justice must be satisfied. The penalty of sin must be paid. But he is a God of mercy because God himself was willing to pay that penalty. Only Jesus explains to us, shows to us, demonstrates to us who God is. Finally, definitively, because he is the image of the invisible God. The aspects of God's being that are in our minds completely incomprehensible. Jesus allows us to understand because of who he is. He is full of goodness, full of righteousness, full of mercy, full of justice. This is who Jesus is and he explains to us who God is. Apart from Jesus, we cannot know God. That's why Paul is saying he is the image of the invisible God. Who he is, he is the image of God. One way to illustrate it might be this. Can you remember what it was like before you knew how to read? It may be hard to do. 
if you can just rewind and just think what it was like to look at a page full of black and white squiggles and just not really know anything. And you're just looking at the pictures in a book. But when, when you sit down with mom and she reads the book to you, then you could understand. That's kind of what, what, what Jesus does for us. We can understand who God is because he is the image of the invisible God. He is God come in the flesh. He shows us who God is. And because of that, we should seek our fulfillment and our satisfaction in him alone. This is the whole point of the passage, the whole point of this book, is that there is something in our hearts, just like Angie was singing about, that this world can never satisfy. There is this void, this vacuum, this emptiness that only God can fill and he can only fill it as he makes himself known through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for us. Jesus is the image of the indivisible God. Who he is, he's the image of God. He reveals God. But second, how he ranks. How he ranks. And we see this in two places in this poem. The firstborn of all creation in verse 15 and then in verse 17, he is before all things. So who he is, the image of the invisible God, how he ranks the firstborn of all creation. Now, it's important to understand what this word means, firstborn, because we can immediately jump to the conclusion that this is referring to the fact that Jesus came into being at some point in time. Firstborn, because we know that when babies are born, that's the beginning of their, of their lives outside the womb. Firstborn is not referring to Jesus having begun at some point in time. It's referring to his rank. Because in ancient cultures, the firstborn in a family possessed a rank that was distinctive from the rest of the siblings, the rest of the children. So when Paul says firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus is a part of creation that began to exist as a point of, at a point in time. That can't be the case. For one thing, we know because it says by him were all things created. He is not part of creation because he is the creator. Firstborn here refers to his rank. He is above all. He surpasses all. It's so important to make, this, to make this distinction and to understand that Jesus is as the image of God, as he is the image of the invisible God. In order to properly image God, he must be God. And as God, he is uncreated. And as uncreated God, the Son of God, he ranks above all creation and therefore he is called the firstborn of all creation. Now there are a lot of people that don't believe that. A lot of people that want to believe that, that Jesus somehow is is a step down from true deity. Maybe he's deity in some way, but he is not uncreated. There's a translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. It's a translation of the Watchtower Society, known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they insist that Jesus Christ is not God, that he is a created being, a high being, but a created being nonetheless. And here is how they render this passage. So the New World Translation, used by the Jehovah's Witnesses, translated this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all, and then there's an open bracket, other, close bracket, things were created in the heavens and upon the earth. And all, same thing, other things have been created through him and for him. Also he is before all, 
other things, and by means of him all other things were made to, to consist. Why does it have to put other there? Because if you don't have other and just all, it's implying, truthfully, that Jesus is the creator, and he is. And so in the New World Translation, they have to insert the word other to imply that Jesus is part of creation. But this passage is teaching very clearly that Jesus is not created. He is the creator. He is one with God. He is to be worshipped as God. He is God the Son, uncreated, having no origin, eternally begotten of the Father. That is the teaching of this passage. And there's only one way that Jesus Christ could be the one from whom we find maturity and wholeness, and that is if he is God. And that is Paul's point throughout this, this letter. That he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Here's how he ranks. He surpasses all creation. Why? Because he created it. And it deserves all our loyalty. All our love. And this is just what Jesus was saying uh, in, that John records in this conversation with the Jews. Jesus had told the Jews that if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And they said to him, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? This is the conversation between Jesus and, and, and these people that didn't believe him. And Jesus responded to them by saying this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What is Jesus implying? That he pre-existed, that he existed during the time of Abraham and before that. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. He is the eternally existing Son of God. And therefore, he ranks above everything. Who he is, the image of God, how he ranks, firstborn over all creation, he surpasses everything. He is before all things. And third, what he has done. What he has done. And there are two things that Paul points out that he has done here, and that is that he has created and sustained. He is the creator and sustainer. It says in verse 16, for by him, literally in him, all things were created. By using the passive voice of were created, Paul is drawing attention to the fact that God the Father and God the Son both have a role in the creation of this universe and that the Son is properly seen as the agent of creation. Now, notice what Paul focuses on as the objects of creation. What was created? I mean, he could have talked about the stars and the, sun, the, the moon and, and trees and spiders and rivers and rocks and all these things. He could have talked about that. It's true that Jesus is the creator of all that. But what specifically does it focus on? What specifically is he concerned to point out that Jesus is the creator of? Yes, he's the creator of all things, but specifically Paul lists these things. Whether visible or invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about people that are in charge. 
Remember we asked the, at the beginning of the question, okay, who's in charge? And whoever is in charge is going to be the one to whom I lean into for help and for assurance, to, for answers, to find meaning and, and support in life. And what Paul is saying here is that there is one person that created all the authorities. Anyone who could be possibly be said to say that's in, in charge, anyone in charge has been created by the one in charge, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So why would you look to anything else to find maturity and wholeness and completeness in life? Paul is exalting the status of Jesus Christ. Or not, Paul is not exalting the status of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is exalted. He's just pointing out his exalted status. And he's saying, look, Jesus made it all. There is no angelic being. There is no government power. There is no businessman. There is no psychological guru that has not been created by Jesus Christ. Everything has been made by him. He is before all things. He is responsible for even the very power structures in this universe itself. He is the creator of all. So why would you look for your maturity in anything else? This is what Paul is this is why Paul is pointing this out about Jesus Christ as the creator and the sustainer. Sure, it is true that right now, at this point in history, the nations rage and imagine vain things like the churning waves of the sea in a storm, but Jesus has the power to stand in that storm and with a word say, peace be still. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of power in your life over the influences in your life. And in him all things hold together. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things stay together. Jesus is holding everything together by his power. By the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So who's in charge? It's not a manager at a restaurant. It's not your boss. It's not the president of the United States. The person who's in charge is Jesus Christ. But when we look at the world around us, we think, now, hang, wait just a second. There's a problem here. And yes, there is. And that's why Paul goes on to explain that the one who is the Lord of all as it is is the one who can be the master of things as they should be. He is both Lord and Savior. Jesus is the one who can make people who are enemies with God reconciled with God. Who, who can make people who are enemies with each other reconciled with each other. And how does he do it? Jesus Christ wields his authority not just because he is omnipotent, all-powerful as the creator, but he also wields his authority and his power by being the Savior. And how did he save us? By his death on the cross. That's why verse 20 says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace. How? Not by sheer might, not even by creative power, but by the most humbling possible death. The death of a criminal on a cross in the place of sinners who didn't deserve that kind of love so that they could receive that kind of love and be made at peace with God. That's who Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, who he is. How does he rank over everything? 
And what has he done? He's created and he sustains. And most importantly for you and me who, who face our sin and look at the world of sin around us, he can reconcile us. And those who have believed in Jesus Christ are reconciled with God. And those who have not yet believed in Jesus Christ can be reconciled with God. And this is the source of our maturity. This is the source of our wholeness. Why would you look anywhere else? Brothers and sisters in Christ, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, if you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now it could be that you've been distracted from him. It could be that something else has just magnetized your affections. Pulled you right away from your, your allegiance to Christ. Oh, don't forget how valuable he is. Don't forget how exalted he is. Don't forget his status as Lord and as Savior. This past weekend I was speaking at a, a conference in Nashua and I'll have to ask the forgiveness of the teachers that were there because I'm going to repeat an illustration. But I wanted to use it as well in this message. Not long ago, my wife had gotten an espresso maker at a yard sale or something. I think it was a yard sale. And then she was thinking about selling it. And so she was trying to figure out how much she should sell it for. So she started looking at Amazon for how much it was going for. And as she was looking at Amazon, she started to read the reviews. And people were saying what an amazing espresso maker this was. And all the really nice drinks it could make. And the more she read, the more she began to think, now why am I selling this thing? <laughs> and by the time she clicked out of Amazon.com, she had made a decision. She's going to keep the espresso maker. <laughs> you know, sometimes we forget the value of what we have in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're tempted to, to give him up, our affection to him up, in favor of other things. And here's what we need to do. We need to get back to what the Bible says about Jesus. We need to start reading the reviews about Jesus and realizing, no, no, what am I thinking? He is the sovereign. He is the master. He is the creator. He is the one who's in charge of the universe. And moreover, he is the one that makes, that fills my heart and brings me into a right relationship with God. What am I doing seeking satisfaction in anything else? That's what we need to be reminded of. So as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him.